When someone makes a promise to you, do they always keep it? What about God? Does He always keep His promises? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. In our podcast today, we'll see how God kept His promise to return people to their homeland after they'd been taken captive for 70 years. But as for the people of God, uh, not so much. They didn't do such a great job of keeping their promises to God. And from their example, we'll learn some ways to keep our promises to God and at the same time grow in our Christian lives. First of all, before we get into the lesson itself, I want to give you a little reminder on how we should read, interpret, and apply the historical books of the Bible. This is condensed advice that comes from the wonderful book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And on the website, I'll have a little bit more of a review and we'll point you to how you can get it. Now, the Old Testament narratives, as this book tells us, they record what happened. Now, just because the Bible records it, that isn't necessarily what should or ought to have happened. In the historical narratives also, they don't teach doctrine and they don't state applications. The reader is supposed to know how to apply what they're reading. And particularly in this passage that we're looking at, it doesn't say, this is how people broke the covenant with God and this is what happened to them because of it. And so don't do the same. But because the Bible expects us to have read God's covenant with Israel back in the early parts of the Old Testament, in what we call the Pentateuch, where he says, if you do this, you do this, you do this, then I will be with you and I will bless you. If you don't, these are the things that are going to happen. It's expected that we've read that, that we understand it. So when we see it working out in history, we can learn from it. Now, this is what has happened to them, is they've been punished for their sins, they went into captivity, and now God is bringing them out of it. And the way they summarize the overall view of these books in what the Bible's all about is the author says, in all of the biblical narratives, in the final analysis, God is the hero, not just the people. Now we're going to be talking about a number of people today when we discuss the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, but keep in mind throughout all of these discussions that God is the one who is ultimately the hero in all the stories. Now let's jump back into the history itself. After the lessons that we've had on judgment, after the years of people's captivity, Psalm 126 is a wonderful praise psalm that talks about what happens when they return from captivity. It says, When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. The other nations said, What amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. And the stories are told in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, a little bit about these books. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book in the Hebrew Old Testament. This combined book was traditionally written by Ezra, although obviously when you read Nehemiah, parts of it were written by him originally because it's it's in, very much in the first person. Now, the timing of the books is a little bit confusing because because the book of Ezra starts out before Ezra personally was actually involved. And we'll talk about exactly what that is later. It talks about the first return to the land under a leader named Zerubbabel. Now, what's confusing, though, is 
there is a break in the book of Ezra, though you're not really aware of it, it's a break historically, and that is that the book of Esther takes place in the middle of the book of Ezra. And then the book of Esther takes place, then the story of Ezra starts back up again. He leads a second group of people back to the promised land, and a little bit later, Nehemiah, but they're pretty contemporaneous. They actually work together in the later parts of the book. He goes to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. Let's look at the history in a little bit more detail. The people were told that their nation would be punished for 70 years. In Jeremiah, he says, when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, and I will make it desolate forever. Now, prior to this, the book of Isaiah even 150 years prior to this, talked about how that they would be in captivity, but that a man named Cyrus would actually come along as a ruler and would allow the people to return, and that is exactly what happened. Now, not only do we have the biblical account of it, but archaeologically we have something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is this archaeological piece that actually has Cyrus's declaration on it that allowed the Jews to return. So quite a few of them returned to the land from Babylon. But it's important to understand that actually it was a pretty small group and not all of them did. They'd become very, very comfortable not only in Babylon itself, but Babylon had been conquered by the Medes and the Persians and they'd sort of spread out throughout the whole empire. Susha was the capital of the Medes and the Persians and that is where we will see the book of Esther actually taking place and where the book of Nehemiah starts. So they're scattered all through this land and apparently they were living very comfortably. They had their businesses, they had their farms, and a lot of them did not want to go back to this destroyed and demolished and war-torn Jerusalem. So they stayed and they were pretty comfortable until some things happened and we'll get to that in just a little bit. So they go back and they are under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel was a direct descendant of King David. Had the captivity not taken place, he would have been king. Now we will see him later. You'll actually see him listed in the lineage of Joseph, who is, of course, the human adopted father of Jesus. In Matthew 1.13, it mentions him. There's also a priestly leader named Jeshua, and these are the two people that lead them back into the land. Now, we don't hear a whole lot about them in these books, but you will more. In the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking about the last of the prophetic books in Haggai and Zechariah. These two men will figure very prominently and it's it's kind of sad because in so much of our church studies and Sunday school studies and things like that, we don't really hear about Zerubbabel a whole lot. But he was really a great hero of the faith, and we'll be talking about him in the coming weeks. But as soon as they get to the land, they immediately began to build the temple. Now, it was a very scary situation. They were surrounded by enemies who did not want the temple or Jerusalem as a city to be built up again. They threatened, they made all kinds of problems, but it says in Ezra 3, 11 through 13, despite their fear, the people built. 
And so they just jumped right in, and then they laid the foundations of the temple. And this is how Ezra describes their celebration. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good! His love towards Israel endures forever. All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the sounds of joy from the sound of weeping. Now, (laughs) as we look at that passage, my first response was, Really? I mean, you're crying because of this? You know, what is wrong with you people? Um, God did an extraordinary work. He prophesied what would happen 150 years before it happened. Not only were the people allowed to return to their own land, but they were given silver and gold that had been robbed from the temple. They'd been given the articles for the temple. They still had legitimate leaders. The man who was supposed to be king was still there. The one who was supposed to be high priest was still there. And yet their response was whining and complaining because it isn't what they'd expected. And I want us to pause for a minute and look at this because God is gracious. He continues to bless them and protect them. But ingratitude is really a terrible, terrible thing. I think about how I know with a number of the people in my life, some of the younger kids that we we know or friends or whatever, how really frustrating it is if you give them something and they just kind of ignore it. They don't say thank you. They don't, you know, no response or anything like that. And think about how God feels. He has given us everything and he expects us to be thankful. He commands us to be thankful. And it's so sad when we don't thank him for things. And so we want to look at the situation here and realize that we must stop whining and be thankful. It is something that we can train ourselves to do. The New Testament once again says, in everything give thanks. I talk about this in so many of my lessons, but it it's worth repeating again and again that the Bible doesn't say to give thanks for a difficult situation, but we can always thank God in it because he is still on the throne, he is still in control, and he will work it out for our good. Now, perhaps because of their ingratitude, it seems like the enemy threats get the best of them. Their enemies write to the king and say, oh, these are really rebellious people, and they've always been rebellious and terrible, and they need to stop. Now, not only does King Darius respond and say to them, no, they're not going to stop because Cyrus commanded them to build the temple and the decrees of the kings cannot be canceled. Not only that, but he makes these enemies of Israel contribute to the building of the temple. He taxes them. He tells them they're supposed to sort support them and give them supplies and all those kinds of things. So it, it, it's kind of a humorous thing in a way. But at the same time, it seems like the people get distracted and the building of the temple kind of slacks off and 15 years go by. Now we're not going to talk about what happened then to get them going again because that is what we'll start talking about next week when we talk about the prophets Haggai and Zechariah who who come around and get the people fired up and they start building again. But 
let's just look at the history right now and remember there's kind of this time that things have slacked off. Now, just like a good movie, the scene shifts and we're back in the capital, Susha, the capital of the empire, the Medes and the Persians. The Jewish people have been scattered throughout it, and we're going to look now at what was going on back in the capital. And Xerxes is the king, and the book of Esther now is where we're going to focus on the history. It starts out with the king giving this huge drunken banquet, and he celebrates for 180 days, and he has this really extravagant party. History tells us that he was trying to gather all his nobles in support of a campaign that he is going to be doing where he will fight against Greece and the fictional account of it is in that super tacky movie The 300 um, which really is not at all historically accurate but that's that's kind of the setting for it but in the middle of this or actually near the end of it the king orders the current queen Queen Vashti to appear she refuses and there's all sorts of reasons that commentators have for why she refused but the bottom line is she refused and she loses her position as queen because his advisors say if the commoners hear what happens no husband will be respected and you have to make an example of her so he gets rid of her and then it says after his uh, drunken party is over he really regrets what he he did he misses his queen e- even though he has hundreds of concubines and all of this sort of thing but what they propose is that a search be given for beautiful young virgins and they bring in all these girls and the one that he likes best gets to be queen very important here time for a reality check the story of esther is neither a romance nor is it some feminist fable to show the power of a woman back in those days. No, the time that this took place, uh, Xerxes was an incredibly powerful, despotic ruler. This was a time when powerful men, kings, had large harems of women, they had concubines, they had um, women that were in all sorts of different um, uh, levels of power, and women really had no rights. Now, Esther, as when she finally becomes queen, she will, the women of that day did have their own, if they became very powerful like this, they had their own household, they had their own servants, they had their own wealth, but she had absolutely no choice whether or not she was going to be rounded up to be in this sort of beauty pageant, whatever, to be queen. And I've read some really ridiculous commentaries where they say, well, she just should have refused to have done that. And, you know, why did Mordecai, Mordecai, I allow it and blah 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 that's just all absolutely foolish and a misunderstanding of history she is an orphan she is being raised by her uncle Mordecai whose family was taken to Babylon under the first deportation he is about I believe third generation there he's raising this young girl and they have absolutely no say as to whether or not she was going to be rounded up as part of this um, beauty pageant or whatever you want to call it for the king she is rounded up she's taken to the palace Mordecai is able to stay in touch with her to make sure that she's okay. Now, it says, though, that when she was entrusted under Haggai, who was in charge of the harem, it says that she pleased him and won his favor. And the favor that she gets, how she's well taken care of, how she is given really good things, it reminds us a lot of the story of Daniel. 
who was also taken into captivity as a young person. But God had the people in the palace there show him favor, and he became a trusted public servant. And in many similar ways, that happens with Esther. She also finds favor with the king, and he makes her queen. As I said earlier, the royal women of that time would have had their own living area, perhaps even their own palace. We remember Solomon had an entire palace built for his wife, who was the daughter of Pharaoh. She would have had her own servants. She would have had great wealth. But the bottom line is, she had no freedom. She was basically a captive there in the palace. Now, She's queen, and a villain comes on the scene. His name is Haman. He is a descendant of the Amalekites, and it's very interesting, just a little historical footnote. Um, generations earlier, God had told King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, and he didn't do it. And just a little uh, parenthetical application here. Because he didn't do it, Haman is then later a descendant, and God will protect the Jews, but they go through some pretty scary things because of him. Our application is that the results of incomplete obedience, which is what Saul was guilty of, we have no idea what they might be. And so, of course, the challenging application is when God tells you to do something, do what he says and do it completely. Now, Haman he decides that he is going to be this super important person in the kingdom and he's really a good buddy with the king and then he goes out one day and Mordecai won't bow down to him and so he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and he decides not only is he going to kill Mordecai but he is going to destroy his entire people he goes into the king and he makes up this story about how there's this group of people that they don't obey you they don't uh, care about your laws they're rebellious, and let's just wipe them all out. And the king, again, he seems to not really have thought through some of his decisions. He says, why not? Go ahead, kill him. I don't care. So this edict takes place. They uh, cast lots, which are called pur, um, and they come up with this uh, time to kill all the people. Now, apparently Esther doesn't know this is going on. But Mordecai hears about it. He sends her a copy of the edict, and he says in this great challenge, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, we'll continue with Esther specifically in just a moment, but I want to take a moment and look at that little statement that you've come to this position for such a time as this. In Acts 17.26, it says, it was talking about God, that from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. We are living where we are, and in the time we're living, because God decided specifically that's where we should be and this is when we should live. And it's not an accident. Now, I, I for those of you that uh, don't know me personally, I'm constantly so thrilled and delighted and absolutely, literally, thank God continuously that I get to live in Southern California. I know a lot of people think it's a really crazy place, but I love it. I live in Ventura, California, and I'm so thankful. I'm also so thankful that I'm 
living in a time where I can teach lessons like I'm teaching right now, and literally anyone anywhere in the world can listen to them. What an extraordinary time to be able to teach God's Word. But none of it's because of me. This is where God decided to put me, and this is a job He decided to give me to do. And my challenge, and the challenge for all of us, is how faithful are we where we are and doing what He wants us to do. But let's move on now. Esther listens to what Mordecai says, and here's her response. She says, Gather all the Jews who are in Susha and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. You see, the law at that time was you could not just go barging into the king's presence. You, If you went before him, you could immediately be killed unless he held out his golden scepter and if you touched it, then that was a sign that you were you were okay, you could present your petition or whatever it was. But she knew that he might not want to do that. He was a very uh, volatile person. So she says, I'll, I will go in, and even though it's against the law, and then these, this great line of hers, if I perish, I perish. Now we know that she goes into the king, he holds out his golden scepter, she invites him and Haman to a banquet. They go to the banquet the first night, she invites him to another one, and at the second banquet his plot is disclosed. He is executed, the Jews are then allowed to fight for their lives, and they are victorious. This is the origin of the Jewish festival of Purim, which is still celebrated today. And it uh, talks about, in the book of Esther, it talks about about how it was the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies as a month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And they were supposed to observe it by days of feasting and joy and giving presents and food to one another and gifts to the poor. And as I said, the Jews continue to celebrate this today. Now, after this took place, another group goes back to Israel. And sometimes I think perhaps, and you know, the Bible isn't real specific on this, but maybe some of them realized, mm, maybe we're not so safe here as we thought we were. Maybe we ought to go back to our own land. But we don't know all of the reasons that caused it. But after this, Ezra leads another group back to the promised land. They went under King Artaxerxes, who was the ruler after Xerxes. And he is also the king of the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah will join Ezra a few years later. And so they go back to the land. And this is the command that Artaxerxes says, uh, or that he gives to Ezra. He says, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of the trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any that do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of his property, or imprisonment. <laughs> How would you like that if you didn't go to Sunday school? <laughs> you are going to be punished by death. Um, we don't think this was ever carried out, but Ezra goes back to the nation of Israel with a very firm command to set up a good government and to teach God laws. Now he goes to Jerusalem and things aren't going really well. He finds that the people had intermarried with pagans and what was so terribly 
sad about this is that's the sin that got them in trouble in the first place. Intermarrying with the pagans of the land, then they started worshiping their gods. That's when God had to judge them. Punishment fell, they were removed from the land, and they come back and there they are doing it all over again. That needed to be set right. Now before that happened, another leader comes on the scene. Back in Susa, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes is a man named Nehemiah. And he hears that the people in Jerusalem are in great trouble and distress. The walls of the city were still broken down. We find out later in the book of Nehemiah that the city is just a mess of rubble. They did get to building the temple, but everything else is just a disaster. There's trash all over the place and broken down buildings. And if any of you saw pictures of um, Europe per- for example, after the bombings after World War II, I would imagine that Jerusalem was a lot like that, where there were just piles of rubble everywhere, just destruction everywhere. The city's walls were broken down, so it couldn't even really be considered a self-governing city because the walls of a city were its protection. They were its boundaries. They were a symbol of its power. So his heart is touched. And he asked the king to be able to do something about it. Now, a little bit of application right here. Nehemiah was extremely comfortable in his position. This is one of the highest positions in the land. He was very far away from the problem. In many ways, he could have said, not not my issue. You know, those people, they, you know, they just haven't been doing their job. They, you know, I don't know what's wrong with them, but they need to get to work. But he didn't do it. He felt like he was personally responsible to do something, and he did. He prayed, and he took specific actions. Now, the challenge for us, now, we chances are God will not, well, he might for some of you, but that he won't call us to do something extraordinary as he did with Nehemiah. But it isn't enough to just feel bad about something happening. I was reading an article lately where it talked about how people today read so many things online and they just feel terrible and they feel terrible and they get depressed and they get upset. But you need to do something. And if something touches your heart, find out who is doing something in that area. There are, for all of the denominations, you have different groups in your churches who the Catholic Relief Agency and the Baptists have some outreach groups and the Lutherans. And then for interdenominational, there's World Vision. And uh, there's so many others. I can't even list them all. There's really, there's some very good governmental groups. They're doing things in areas of great need. Pick one or two or several of them contribute help where you can if it's something where you can take time off to volunteer and go actually help in rebuilding or in some sort of service project do it don't just sit on the sidelines and feel bad for people if you can't do anything else either because of physical limitations or financial ones you can always pray so do what you can and be like Nehemiah now he did so much more though we know he goes back and he builds the walls he rebuilds the walls but he did more than that for 12 years he served as governor and not only did he rebuild the city physically but he rebuilt the spiritual and social lives of the people he partnered with Ezra and he gave Ezra opportunities to teach he made sure there was social justice and economic justice when he found out that the rich were exploiting the poor he challenged them he said do not do that he set a great example in his own life 
Though he had a right to, he did not tax the people. He didn't take anything from them. It says he, out of his own resources, fed the leaders and nobles that were working with him. He greatly encouraged revival with the teaching of Ezra, and he oversaw the dissolution of the marriages to the pagan women. Now, there are so many. It just really bothers me that we can't spend literally weeks talking about Nehemiah. But we can't because we're zooming through the Old Testament. But I do want to point out... one of the stories in the book that's one of my favorites. And this is when they were rebuilding the wall. One of the verses says in Nehemiah 3.28, excuse me, it says, Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, and then here's the key phrase, each in front of his own house. Now, the application that I get from that, and I've used it in a lot of teaching examples, is all of us are working to build up the kingdom of God, just as all of the people were working to build the walls around Jerusalem. And But where did God ask people to build? Right in front of their own house. And this is the greatest application for all of us. Don't worry about winning the whole world. God hasn't called you to do that. But he's called you to win the world right in front of you, to be concerned about the salvation of your neighbors, the good of your community, wherever it is. So not only did Nehemiah work on that, but the people heard the words of the law. They confessed their sins. They promised that they would forsake the intermarriage with pagan nations. They promised that they would support the temple with tithes and offerings. And the book um, in chapters 8 and 9, it talks about how they would do that. Now all these join their fellow Israelites and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands and regulations and decrees of the Lord. What a great victory. Nehemiah has accomplished what he'd wanted to accomplish. He's rebuilt the walls. There's spiritual revival with the people. He goes back home to the palace. Uh, But then he returns. And he finds that the people had neglected the temple. The priests had to go back to farming to support themselves. Worst of all, they were once again intermarrying with the pagan nations. And Nehemiah says, this is what got you into trouble in the first place. What are you thinking? He gets really, really angry. He's horrified. He forces them to repent. And we will see again in the the later books of prophecy, and particularly in the book of Malachi, where, he speci- where the prophet Malachi specifically addresses these situations. Now, the book closes with him literally tearing his, well, actually he tears the hair out of some of the people that that he is punishing and just this great frustration over the sins of the people just these reoccurring sins and it's very easy to judge them but we let's look at the overall picture god keeps his promises even though his people are not faithful to keep theirs no matter how serious the sins of the people no matter how minor sins are sadly we see this again in the again in the old testament and we see it in our own lives that we will tend to repeat certain sins we can't judge them too harshly because we do the same thing but we also need to look at how we can correct this. Now, the application to us, and I have quite a bit more in the notes that I won't have time to go over in the podcast, but please do download the notes, 
is the challenge to us is what are known as besetting sins. These are the sins that we simply commit again and again and again because we aren't thinking about it. The verse where we get that name, besetting sins, is in Hebrews 12.1 where it says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and parentheses here, it's just finished talking about the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. And we might say that this is also a great application after looking at Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The verse continues, it says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, when it's talking about laying aside these sins, these these are the ones that are what are known as besetting sins. And many commentators say these aren't really major sins. Now, if we're committing things like killing people and, you know, all sorts of terrible, dreadful things, we might question our salvation. But no, nobody um, in the Old Testament was, was killing people or sacrificing their babies to idols that had been done in the past. They weren't doing these terrible, terrible things. But they were falling back into the start of those same sins just by their intermarriage and by not supporting the temple. And for all of us, we need to ask ourselves, what sin in our lives? And remember, sin means missing the mark. Once you become a believer, the mark that we're looking for is we want to become like Jesus. And so what is it in our life that trips us up from that goal? What is it that keeps us from doing our best for the sake of the kingdom? What are the things, and this is really important, that we just naturally default to? There's an excellent article by John Piper, and I have the link for it, where he took some time during an eighth-month sabbatical to really examine his own life. And he talked about what he discovered is that he had his what he felt was the big biggest sin that he had to work on in his life, where he had to be very specific about it, he said, I'm selfish. He said, I want to be served. I feel that I'm owed. I want praise and I want things to go my way. And I feel that I have a right to react negatively if people cross me. And he goes through and he talks about how he realized that this is just something he defaulted to. And he had to look at each of these areas and look at scriptures, see what the Bible says about them. And then what is most important is that he had to actively fight against them. He said, here's what I had been missing in each of these cases. The link between the cross and my conquered sin is my empowered will. He repeats the command in scripture to let not sin reign in your mortal body and to glorify God in your body and the command for his specific issues to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving. And he realized that he had to very actively work on that. And then he closes with this great little story of how he had a chance to apply it. He said one Sunday evening, it was cozy and snowy and his wife and daughter and, and um, he were they were all three at home alone and he was looking forward to an evening that they'd all spend together and then his daughter comes into the room he's in and announces, Mom and I are going to go watch this movie on the computer. And he wasn't included. And he said, immediately, 
this anger, this self-pity just rose up in him. But because he'd been working on it, thinking, praying about it, he said, I immediately told myself, no! He said, I quietly went upstairs, consciously renouncing my body language of woundedness, and in my study, I raged war effort. I turned my mind and heart toward the promises of God and the surety of the cross and the love of the Father and the wealth of my inheritance in Christ, the blessings of the Lord's day, the patience of Jesus. I consciously, intentionally, not passively, beat down the anger and self-pity and blaming. And I kept beating them down until they were dead. Isn't that great how he had to intentionally work on those things. Now, I want to share briefly a struggle that I've had, and I feel like I'm finally making some progress. I like to eat. And when I was traveling and teaching and active all the time, um, I could eat a lot, and I, I didn't really gain weight. But when that stopped, oh my goodness, I did start to pack on the weight. Now, I not I not only eat because I'm hungry. I mean, I'm seldom hungry. I just eat all the time. Um, but I would eat because it's fun. It was a comfort. Um, kind of, a, you know, it's my drug of choice. But I'd gained a lot of weight. And finally, I had to realize this is not healthy. My body is a tool that God uses to serve him. And if I'm this, you know, I'm borderline uh, type 2 diabetes. I'm not over that. There was all kinds of other things that aren't even worth going into. All weight related. So I realized at the beginning of this year, I have got to lose some weight. Now, that's really hard for me. I needed a plan. I couldn't do it on my own. I looked at Weight Watchers, and they've got this new program, and it's, it's just really great. I started on that. They have this food list. I started going to meetings recently, which I just, I said, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I hate it. I didn't want to do it because I'm not particularly a meetings type person, but I, I realized I needed to do that. I needed to do the tracking, keeping track of every single thing that goes in my mouth and being very, very careful about it. It's a daily struggle, but you know what? I've lost 25 pounds. Now, it's taken me eight months to do it, and I still need to lose some more. But what's interesting to me is that learning the active self-discipline in this area, and I've been doing a lot of reading on habits, and they say this um, losing weight can be what they call a keystone habit, where once you get disciplined in this area of your life, because controlling our bodies, controlling what we put in our mouth, controlling what we feel is hunger, and there are very few instances that Americans feel true hunger, so we'll put that aside for the moment. But in controlling these things, it helps us control other issues in our life. Anger or lashing back at people or just many, many things become easier to do once we conquer, and I'm far from conquering it, but I'm making progress, one habit. So we have to make conscious application to the changes in our life that God puts on each of our individual hearts. I don't know what it'll be for you on how you can learn to become a better follower of Jesus. Now, a few final applications. It's easy without thinking or planning to fall into sins. You know, no matter how God has blessed us, and he blessed the people so much when they returned to the land, but they fell so easily back into their old sins. 
But we have to remember, sin is missing the mark. If we're not becoming all Jesus wants us to be, we need to work on that. Read that article of Piper's. His example is great. Search your heart. Define the sin in your life. But only pick one at a time. It's really easy to go, I'm terrible at this, I'm terrible at this, I'm terrible at this. Find the root thing. Work on one thing. Track it. And for most of us, one at a time works better. Come up with a plan. And you will see progress. Now I know my weight, even what Mr. Piper went through, Reverend Piper went through, it's a tiny comparison with the challenges of the exiles or Esther. But in the light of these books and the wise advice that we get from the different things, like John Piper, we need to do these things. One, consciously take responsibility for our Christian growth. Two, return to where God wants us to be, growing in Him. Three, rebuild what's been broken. And four, celebrate the work in us that God is doing. And remember this wonderful verse in Proverbs 4, 18, where it says, A path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. We're not there yet, but we will be one day. And praise Jesus for that. That's all for now. Please check out the notes for this lesson. They're really probably more important than many of them because they have just a whole lot more information. They're kind of lengthy, but I I think it will be useful to you. Do subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss out, especially some of the next ones will really fill out the final prophets of the Old Testament. They're great books, and I think you'll really enjoy learning from them. And do let your friends know so that they too can be encouraged as they learn more about God and His Word. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.